Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's give this to God. Father, thank you so much for this. Father, I confess this mini-series, Lord. It's a subject that you talked about more than any other, and uh, here we are giving it uh, scant attention, Father, and calling it a mini-series, and starting it last week, finishing it this week, Lord. So forgive me, I pray for that, Lord. Help me to be more bold on this, God. This is a life-changer. This is something that's beautiful, uh, and the things we long for and the things that we seek, we can only have if we'll go your route, Lord, if we'll do it your way. And when we try to do it our own way, Lord, it makes sense, I suppose, humanly speaking, but it doesn't work. Um, Father, speak through me, open the ears and eyes of our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I long so much for impact. I mean, if we're going to make an impact, I long for us to be like Jesus, to be made in his image. Uh, One of the things that Jesus, one of the millions of things that infinite Jesus, our Lord, is, is he is generous. And a spirit of generosity is what we'll need in this church. Um, You heard me pray it, but it's a two-part series. It's a a mini-series that ends uh, today. Last week, I started this thing called The Giving Bridge, and I tried to deal with the barriers the barriers to thinking correctly about money and possessions. And it's hard to deal with the barriers about money and possessions if we don't even like thinking about money and possessions. Now, I have noticed that people actually do like thinking about money and possessions. They just don't like to be challenged on thinking about money or or challenged about their possessions. They love to have them. They love to think about them. They like to pet them and worship them, but they don't like to be challenged about them. So Last week, we talked about the barriers, things that, that, that stop us from even beginning to think like the mind of Christ about the things that supposedly we own. And we learned that there are, there are bridges in life that we build. We build them when we're little kids, and we keep building them throughout life, and they take us either closer to the Lord uh, or they take us further away. And perhaps the most powerful bridge that you can possibly build is the giving bridge. And so we talked about the giving bridge and how to build it last week. Um, Jesus talked, gang, more about stewardship and our stuff than he talked about faith and prayer and heaven and hell, ready for this, combined, combined. And you and I, we look at our life and we think where we're going to spend eternity, that's pretty important. You'd think Jesus would cover that more, but there's something blocking the way, so he covered that more than all of these, combined. So, but listen, I thought about it this week and I thought, you know what, that this not only means that he talked about him, but that he kept talking about him. I mean, almost 50% of the stories, the parables that Jesus told were about stuff. And he didn't tell them all in one day and just go for a 24-hour binge and just keep on talking and go, there, now I got that out of the way. In order for it to be almost 50% of, of what he talked about, he kept talking about it throughout his ministry from beginning to end. And then when he rose again, and even the time that he was with him, then the Holy Spirit, and then through the, the apostles and then... Paul talked about him in his epistles and his letters that he wrote to the different churches. It's just all over the New Testament. So he kept talking about it. Presumably, here's what I'm thinking my theory is. I guess he just kept talking about it until people got it. One of the biggest churches in the world uh, is a church in Colombia. has about a quarter of a million people. One church. They obviously meet in different locations, but it's a very large church. And uh, the pastor was deeply, deeply convicted uh, as the church was just blowing up and really growing. That's great. People were being saved. But something was off. Something that he saw in the church was off. And I've shared this over the years a couple times. And I guess I'll, I'll never cease to be really moved by what he did. So when it was his time to preach, because God had convicted him all week, he got up before the congregation, the largest part, they meet in a stadium. And he said, brothers, sisters, love one another. And he said it twice. He said, brothers and sisters, please love one another. 
And they're kind of leaning in going, this is going to be a good message. Only the thing is, it was over. That was it. Some of you going, Pastor Rob, you, you could learn a little bit from that guy. I'm just saying. That's pretty short. Yours are long. Somewhere in between. You know, just meet in the middle. Well, he sat down and the elders kind of took over and looked at him and, you know, you want to keep going? He just sat there. I mean, tears were coming down and he sat back down. You know, they have their, kind of their chairs up front. It's a very honoring system that they have. And he nodded no. And, and they, they sang some praises and, and they went home. Well, they thought, now they got that off his chest. Next week, as everybody gathered and around the country and in their large groups and everything, he got up to preach. He did the exact same thing. Brothers and sisters love one another. He did this three weeks in a row. By the third week, the elders in the church got together with him and they said, <clears throat> uh, going to do that next week? How long are you going to keep going with this? And he said, next week I'll preach about what the Lord puts on my heart. So he got up and he said, brothers and sisters love one another. But he did add to this. <clears throat> I was challenged last week. How long am I going to preach on this? I didn't say it in a bad way. And he just said, until we get it. Until we get it. Until as a church, we love one another. And that's pretty indicting to me because I thought, well, as you look at the average church today, you could be preaching on that until the Lord returns, right? Well, this is one of those subjects like that. How long are you going to preach on stewardship? This is way too short. In comparative, I've disobeyed God in the amount I've preached over the years of my life on stewardship. How, how long are we going to go with this, Pastor? Because I'm skipping the weeks you're doing this. Well, then I'll take the smaller core team of the church and we'll go over this blessedly and lovingly and we'll dig deeper until we get it. I like the way Mark Driscoll used to put it. The beatings will continue until we get it. So today I want to focus, amen, for, who was that? As though I did not know. Was that Nicole? Are you hiding, Nicole? Don't hide. We know that it's you. I've never had anybody say amen to beatings. So today I want to focus on getting on the right bridges in life. I mean, we know what it is. It's the giving bridge. Well, how do you get on it? Uh, because there's two types of bridges in life. There's good bridges and bad. We talked about that last week too. Today I want to take a look at another side of these two bridges because I'm not sure we completely understood it. Until we get it, we're not about to pay the toll and get on it. So let's look at their worth what are these bridges in life worth? Are some of them worth nothing? Are they garbage? Are we wasting our time? Are some of them more valuable than we ever thought? So I want you to think of them in terms of the way Jesus talked about them. He talked about them like treasures. So there's two treasures. And though you'd never know it by observing the average uh, American, money's only of temporary value. But I mean, if an alien beamed down and looked at the average American household, he'd go, well, that green stuff they have there, that, that paper that disintegrates and burns, they are worshiping that. That must last forever. That must be some kind of God that does magic tricks or something. Look how they treat it reverently. You'd never know by observing Americans. That it's just temporary. And the only way to extend money's shelf life, because it has a real short shelf life, the only way to extend it is when we share it, spend it, and give it towards a view, a long view of heaven. That's the only way at all you can make money last. But if that's not motivation enough for you and me, that there's far more value and eternal treasure in heaven than the temporary stuff of earth, check, check this out. What God is saying is that not only is this stuff in heaven, storing up treasures in heaven worth so much more than the temporary treasures down here, but some of the temporary treasures down here aren't worth squat. I don't think God said squat, but it was the Greek word for that. And what you can do is he said, but I'll tell you what, just to, I want you to have it. I want you to have the good stuff. So trade that in. Trade your junk in. And I'll give you something that lasts, that's worth a whole lot more. 
You know, this is the ultimate, this is cash for clunkers on steroids, what God's doing here. Give me, give me junk. It doesn't even have to run anymore, and I'll show you that this is worth so much more. Look at it this way. It's like a child trading in a broken Xbox remote, and who hasn't had a remote that went bad? It doesn't work. It can't be fixed. It's junk. It's like trading that in for a majority stock position in Xbox. I mean, you're trading in junk. It's like a homeless guy trading in a five or six bottle caps of a Coke to become the CEO of Coke. And, and we sit there and we hang onto our bottle caps and our broken controllers and go, I don't want that. It's a bad trade. And God's going, no, it's, it's an infinitely more valuable trade. I love the way Andy Alcorn, Andy, Randy Alcorn put it in his book. Listen to this. I want you to listen carefully to this because um, it is the South. I'm going to talk about the Civil War here. So let's go back, back in time. At the end of the Civil War, imagine that you're living in the South, which shouldn't be hard because you are. And, but you're a Northerner. Hey, hey, hang on. Some of you are going, whoa, Pastor, you're really treading. Look, I've found that there's almost more New Yorkers here in Charlotte than there are Charlotteans. Have you noticed that? All right, so this shouldn't be that hard. End of the Civil War, you're living in the South, but you are a Northerner. You plan to move back home to the North very soon as the war is all but uh, over. It's going to be over in a couple months. You know it's going to be signed by Robert E. Lee. It's, it's over. While in the South, though, you've accumulated quite a bit of Confederate currency. Now, what will you do with the Confederate money? Now that you know this thing's drawing to a close, you've got a couple of months and you've got all this money, quite a bit. If you are smart, you will immediately cash it in for U.S. dollars, for U.S. currency, because it's the only money that will have any value once the war is over. So you'll keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs, right? I mean, you're deep in the South. It's not over yet, and you've got to buy things, and they're not going to take northern money right now. So you need just a little bit. I've got to buy food. I've got to get this done. But anything I'm caught holding after the war is going to become nothing but paper, worthless. So you just keep enough for the short time that you'll be living in that Confederate world. So please get this. Kingdom currency is the only medium of exchange recognized by the Son of God, whose government will last forever and ever and ever. But we don't get it. We don't get it. Okay, so you have two treasures, two currencies. You've got this present earth and the future heaven. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's continue with the beatings, Nicole, until we get it. Material things simply, I know we have this, but they simply won't stand the test of time. Even if they escape the moths and the silverfish and the things eat them and the rust in the decay if it's a car uh, or the thieves and the robbers that come and steal them uh, or the stock market crashes that come and go, they can't escape the atmosphere when you and I take our last breath and go to heaven. They can't escape the atmosphere. They can't even escape the ground. They're not going to be able to come with you one inch as your spirit goes to heaven. That's, that they're done. They, they won't move. Never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. So they can't escape it all. At that point, they do not go. Nevertheless, the Lord's primary argument against, I want you to know this, gang. God's, Jesus' primary argument against material wealth isn't that it's morally wrong. Please get that. Never. I never see him in scripture going, it's wrong. Money's wrong. Some people think that. Some people teach that. That's crazy. It's good to have a lot of money as long as you leverage it for eternal things. To be caught at the end of your life with a whole bunch of money and stocks and everything is, is a tragedy. It's a sin. 
It's a man-made argument, though, that says money is bad. In fact, it's a misuse of 1 Timothy 6.10. Ask somebody how they feel about, how God feels about money, and they're likely to quote that verse without having any idea where it is. So write that down so you're not one of those people. It's 1 Timothy 6.10 that is misquoted so often. They will say somewhere in the Bible, I doubt they even know if it's New Testament or Old, it says uh, money is the root of all evil. Does it really? Well, let's look at that verse. It actually says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Man, I look at that and I go, that's, that's not even really close. It says the love of money. You put the word love in there and it takes money as the culprit out right there. It makes the culprit the heart, right? If you love and worship money, that's the root. That's a root. Pride's another one. There's lots of it. That's a root of all kinds of evil. Not even all evil, but all kinds of evil. And it's one of many roots. So you've got a really different thing. That means that money can be good. Money can be used for good. It's a heart issue, gang. It's not a money issue. So if you take a Benjamin out of your wallet, you don't look at it and go, that's evil. I better not touch it. I better wear gloves because that's Satan's. No, it's not. It's the heart. It's not the money. It's a statement against idol worship, not greenbacks or gold or even bitcoins. It's against the heart. Jesus' argument is against amassing material wealth for using for selfish ambition. Because he says, it, it's, just a, it's just a poor investment. I want you to be good investors with the life I've given you, with the new life I've given you. And that's just dumb. It's just a poor, a foolish investment. So that's the earth present. How about the future heaven? <clears throat> God tells us to take an eternal perspective on material wealth. Money managers, if you've ever worked with a money manager, um, or you are one, hang on for a minute. If you are a money manager, if you ever work with them, here's what they try to do. It's the same spiel, more or less. They try to get us to look ahead. And by the way, this is good. You need to think down the road, Mr. Singleton. You're thinking in the present. You need to think 30 years. You've got to think for the college of your kids, and you've got to think for retirement, and you've got to put things away and let them mass up because when it comes to that day, you can't be counting on Social Security to take care of you. It's not going to be there. You got, right? I sound like a preacher, don't I? But they're trying to get us to take the long view. 30 years from now, they'll say. Then they proceed to show you ways to plan a budget and save so that you can be set for retirement. Right? Am I right about that? All right, are the rest of you money managers? Is that, did I pick on you to hurt your feelings? There's more where that came from. There's more where that came from. God says about that mentality, which by the way, earthly speaking is smart to have a long-term, but he says, that's still too short-sighted. That's not long-term. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't ask how your investment will be paying off in 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. That's what God asks, how it'll be paying off in eternity, not even 30 years from now, when you retire and supposedly buy a beach house and collect seashells on the seashore for the rest of your life. God's saying, there's nowhere in my word that I even told you to do that. I don't plan on retiring. I don't know if any of you um, feel the same way, but I, 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 just, I don't plan on retiring. I can't even think about it. You know, because I don't want to stand before the Lord when he says, what did you do with your life? And hopefully, if I've managed a way to get him up there, I'll say, if you could just beam up my bag, my seashell collection, I got a few things to show you, Lord. So here's a shell that I, here's a conch shell I found uh, there in Myrtle Beach. It's one of the largest ones. It, it, you collect seashells? Well, not, not always. Just the last 20 years of my life. 
Then I got some good ones. What about my kingdom work? What did you do? I, I made you a manager of my stuff, and it wasn't to collect seashells. I made those seashells. I know what the biggest cockshell in Myrtle Beach is, and that's not it. You wasted your life. You wasted your life. Every action you and I make is aimed at one, the present earth or the future heaven, at one or the other. We all live our lives from one of these two points of view. You know, sometimes in the New Testament, we read of Jesus referring to the eyes. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. He'll say the eyes are the windows of the soul, or he'll talk about the good eyes and the bad eyes. When he does this, I want you to know that he's referring to perspective. He's, he's referring to point of view. That's just how they, in his culture, talked about it. What's your point of view? What are, where are you coming from? Are your eyes good or your eyes bad? The bad eye in Jewish culture is the perspective that envies others, covets what's theirs, and wishes, even in an extreme case, to harm them in order to get it or to wish them, or even pray bad things so I can have that. I should have that. That's the bad windows to the soul. That's the bad eyes. The Christian's perspective should obviously be different. Should obviously be different. And I want you to hear from one of our own how it can be different. Mike, if you'd come on up. Mike Dawson is going to share his testimony about, can we get this one? Yeah, you're right on it, Kenny. About how the Lord has really changed their perspective on stewardship and money. Hey, how's everybody today? Good. Um, for my wife and I, it all started for us kind of the summer of 2011. That was the uh, year that we gave our lives to the Lord. And shortly after that, we, uh, we really felt this urge to, to change the way that we viewed stewardship and change the way that we viewed our finances. And what we ended up doing was going through a finance class that really taught us the principles that God uses in the Bible and, and then throughout his teaching to align our, our hearts with what he wants us to be, what he wants us to do with our money. With. And what we really came to realize is that it's not our stuff, it's God's stuff. He's just giving us the opportunity to use it. So the following year, we really, we started out trying to, to, to get our finances in order and, and we encountered some obstacles, like I'm sure many of you have. Um, we ha had a, a couple of things that come up. My wife's car needed new tires. Um, we had uh, the washing machine broke. Uh, we, we, it was our, that was the year of our 10-year anniversary, so we wanted, of course, to take a trip for that. Uh, but our biggest obstacle came later that year. Our, our son Colby was, had a lingering cold, uh, just couldn't figure out what it was, so we went to the doctor, did some tests, ran some things, and, and the normal checkup kind of didn't reveal anything, so they decided to draw his blood, see, uh, see if they could figure anything out there. And that's when they determined that he was anemic. And uh, so over the course of the next couple months and several different specialists that we visited, we found out that Colby has a, a medical condition called juvenile polyposis. And it's just a, a condition where his body develops these polyps, and, uh, and, and they just grow rapidly. Uh, they get pretty big, and they have to be removed every year. And so the course of treatment for that is, is to just have a, a colonoscopy to go in and remove them. And being that that's kind of like a surgical procedure, that means that we're hitting our, our maximum out-of-pocket expense every time he has to have one of these operations. And so as you can imagine, that's in today's terms with insurance, that's it's pretty expensive. So um, we, uh, he ended up having to have one of those in December of 2012. And then around October of 2013, ended up having his second one. And the, uh, within with just that, that, two, that one year window, 
we ended up having to just spend so much money and everything on those on those procedures. But throughout this whole process, we were really able to just turn to the Lord and and just kind of allow Him to to take control. Um, and what we ended up finding out was that uh, God is faithful, and we we kind of at the end of that journey, we look back and and we kind of say. Um, excuse me, I've lost my train of thought. Um, yes, he is. <laughs> and he's a teaching God, as you can see right now. Um, but what uh, really, what we learned or took from this was, um, you know, throughout this entire process, in, in 2013, that ended up being the best financial year of our lives. We made more money that year than we ever had before. Uh, despite the fact that we had to put Colby through two surgeries and pay for those two surgeries. But not only that, that was the same year that we gave more to the church than we ever had before. We gave more money to charity than we ever had before. We were able to give to needy families through life groups and through various opportunities through schools and things of that nature. And, and, and even just people on the street, just being able to hand out an extra five or a 10 or somebody that was in need on the side of the street. Uh, we were able to just give abundantly because the Lord was so faithful and so and just blessed us so much. Uh, and all that was just because we chose to be obedient to what he calls us to do. Um, we, we don't fight over money anymore. We're much more content with the things that we have. Uh, it's just been a true blessing what the Lord has done in our life by being an obedient steward to what he calls us to do. You know, I lose my train of thought every week, so you're in good company there. Uh, probably means you're ADD, so talk to me later. <laughs> well, gang, the, the, when Mike was talking, I was thinking about, you know, it sounds like his life is slowly, that God was using different things in his life to, to get it lined up. And obviously, if things aren't lined up, even guardrails when we're driving, if you're not lined up, obviously you can drive off or if the guardrails don't put you there, you can drive off a cliff. And I don't know why I got this view. I was thinking of my favorite football team years ago with Kurt Warner and the Rams, and I was thinking how they ran out of the tunnel on the uh, uh, Super Bowl, and they all come out of the tunnel. I was thinking, what if that tunnel wasn't lined up right? What if that tunnel was pointing towards a wall? And you got the greatest team, in my opinion, in history. And you put them there, and they just run up to the wall, and, and they're going, we can't get out. I mean, we're ready to play. We're and you just got to move that tunnel and get them onto the field and let them run out and get in the game. And so many of our lives are like that. It's almost like we're hitting a wall. We want to do all these things for the Lord and we positioned it against the wall and we've got all this energy. We can't get out. We're misaligned. And, and for us, and sounded like that was what Mike was talking about, uh, debt is what puts us up against a wall. I mean, when we're completely buried in that, have you ever wanted to do great things for the Lord? Have you ever wanted to maybe help somebody go on a mission trip or go yourself? Or just see a need in the church and you go, man, we are well positioned to do this, but pastor says we need more funds to do it. I can't help. I can't do anything. I'm buried. That's being misaligned. Why did God talk so much about our stuff and so much about stewardship? He's trying to line us up to do great things for him. The Christian's perspective can't be any different than the world's if we're traveling the same bridges they are. We're misaligned. Their bridges lead away from God. The giving bridge leads to him. If we're on that one and we want to be closer to the Savior, we can want it and dream about it all we want. It's not going to happen. 
It's not going to happen. That's the principle of the Giving Bridge we talked about last week. It doesn't lead that way. You know, one of my favorite missionaries, a guy by the name of Jim Elliott, who had a heart for a people group that, that uh, about 50 years ago, check this out, was not yet discovered. I always get a kick out of that because how do we know the name of them if they're not yet discovered? Well, we hadn't made contact with them. We called them the Aka Indians, and they were deep in the heart of, of Brazil, and I think Peru and some other South American countries. And uh, they were known to be cannibalistic, and they were known to be violent, and so nobody had made contact. And they went down there and studied them and, and tried to make contact with them and, and tried to send things in, and nothing was really working. Uh, <clears throat> well, that one of them was a pilot. And it was so cool. They took their Cessna and they used to fly over some of these villages that they had found. And they had a long rope, I'm not kidding, with, with gifts on the end of it. And they would lower this thing down and he would fly in circles over that village and they would see this basket and they would lower it down. There were all these gifts, things that they could really use. And they did this for months. And then they tried to get something uh, communicated to them of God's love without using a language because they didn't have a written language. It went on and on. And then one day they finally decided to land there. Uh, and set up camp and then slowly make contact. And they made a couple contacts with the Aka people and they were nice and they exchanged gifts and they were writing in their journals and they were so happy about, because there's thousands of them. The Lord's gonna open a door and we're gonna finally reach them for Jesus. And then one day they came with weapons and spears and their arrows and attacked the five missionary men, including Jim Elliott, and slaughtered them. And we just left them bloody and they're floating in the river and uh, uh, we found this later, and it was just a, it was in the papers. And, and, and the biggest thing that was said about him is, what do you think? What a waste. What a waste of a life. I mean, he wanted to do all this good, and yet here he is dead. He wasted his life. He actually graduated, I believe, from an Ivy League school, and so the world was saying he could have made money, could have had a great... And yet, Jim Elliott's wife and the wife of all of the other missionaries stayed. And they kept working this through. And some of the Aka Indians would escape <clears throat> and they'd get out into regular uh, society and culture and then they communicated with them and they asked them about this and they remembered those five men and the women made contact and the women went back into the villages with them and because of what they had done and when they found out who they were and what they were trying to do, they repented in mass and came to the Lord by the hundreds, including the chief of that village that killed them. They're friends now to this day. I think he's like 90 years old now. And he was just in the Americas. I was reading about this. They're friends. Generation after generation, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Aka Indians have come to Christ because they gave their lives and opened the door. So it turns out it wasn't a waste after all, was it? It was a literal giving bridge that they had to give their lives to build and then their wives carried it on. Jim Elliott, even when he was down there working and giving up this, this future he could have had from an Ivy League college, people used to make fun of him for that, and he's famous for saying this, and I want, you to, I want you to know it, embrace it, and memorize it. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I mean, he would hear people say that about him, and it would honestly confuse him, and he'd say, how am I a fool? You're the fool. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's crazy arguing. You're the fool. You're clinging on to things you can't take with you and trading what could last forever. Why work for what has no lasting value? Why rejoice over what will end no matter what? God's word in 1 Peter 1.4 says, there is a priceless inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. <clears throat> it's hard to remember this 
when things are tough in life. I get it. When things are tough, sometimes we look at God and we get mad at God because we, we say, you're not keeping your end of the bargain. I'm following you. Give me a healthy, wealthy, prosperous life. And he said, I will. It's called heaven. You're trying to create that here on earth. You didn't listen. So it's hard when there's pain and trials, but it's exactly in those times when we have to have an accurate assessment of which treasure is worth more, right? Romans 8.18 says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. It's nothing. You know who said that? Paul, who probably suffered more than any Christian in history. Stoned to death. They threw rocks at him and they thought they had stoned him and hit him in the head and crushed his skull to death. It left him bleeding and dying. Didn't even think they needed to take care of him. God raised him back up and he kept ministering. That happened to him twice. How many of you have ever had rocks thrown at your head once? thought we'd have at least five or six. Now, how many of you have ever been beaten, uh, lashed, whipped 39 times within an inch of your life? Once. Hands, anyone? How about five times with Paul? How many of you have ever been shipwrecked and left in the open sea? Twice for Paul. How many of you have ever been bitten by a poisonous snake that should kill you in about 20 minutes and lived? Paul, still talking about Paul. And yet Paul said that all the sufferings we go through in this life, they're a joke, trust me. Now, That's a pretty risky thing to say. People can get mad at you who are suffering when you say something like that, except for one thing. Paul is the only person in the entire New Testament that Jesus ever caught up into heaven and let him see it before he died. So Paul, so that you can write this, I want to show you something. Caught him up to the third heaven where Jesus is, where is all his glory, where we're going when we die. And he said, just take a look. And Paul was so blown away by the glory of it. And when he came back, he just laughed. That's why he could sing in prison. He said, bring it on. I haven't suffered enough. I want, a, I want a better suffering resume because this is a joke. I've seen it. How do I convince you? I've seen it. It's a bad trade-off. Gang, I know this is a tough one and I'm not trivializing and neither is Paul who suffered, like I said, more than anyone. But he reminded people of this all the time. He kept saying, hang in there, do good because you're gonna, you're gonna regret it if you don't. There's a time coming. He wrote this to the Romans. But listen, he also said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our our present troubles are small. They won't last long. Yet they produce for us a glory that will vastly outweigh them and will last forever. It's like two different peoples, two different races, cultures, backgrounds, everything. And yet he wrote the same thing. In fact, in Revelation 21, 4, he says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things of this life will pass away. That's written to every believer of every culture throughout all of history and into the future. So what I'm trying to say is what do all these have in common? The same point of view. That suffering is the most difficult part of life, but don't miss this. God is saying that the way that we deal triumphantly with all these pains and all this suffering, thank you, Michelle, with all this pain and all this suffering in life is to play the long game, not the short game. Work on the long game. Once we understand this, we can find joy in any circumstance. 
Remember what Paul was able to pull off. It's what I want to pull off more than anything. He was able to sing joyfully, completely free, with nobody after him, with plenty of money and plenty to eat. And he was able to be chained next to notorious prisoners in prison awaiting a death sentence and sing the same hymns with the same enthusiasm. Can you do that? How does that work? It works by taking the long perspective and not the short one. I mean, I want that kind of joy. And I, I personally, I don't want it connected to earthly stuff because for me, I'm too up and down. Ask my wife emotionally. It's like a roller coaster with me. <laughs> I mean, it's just all over the place. It really is. I mean, in that respect, I think I'm more like a woman. Don't ever repeat that. <clears throat> ever repeat that. Just up and down. And by the way, I just realized I probably lost all the ladies in saying that. So I just, well, for the three of you listening to me now, uh, when you're up and down and you want that even keel and you want to end that and you just want to be full of joy constant, this is it. It's the only way I know. It's the only way given in God's words. This is why James was able to write the following not with a straight face, gang, with a joyful face. Check this out, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? If you were going through the most difficult thing in your life and somebody came up and said this, wouldn't you punch him in the throat? I'll count it joy right after I hurt you. But he said, count it all joy because you know God's allowing you to go through that. He's refining you. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and endurance and let that endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, he's taking you through a process and you're gonna end up looking more like Jesus at the end of that process. Isn't that worth it? Am I wrong? Alice Gray writes of sitting in a restaurant, talking with a friend about painful challenges in their lives, and they frequently mention the Lord. In other words, they're, they're talking, and one of them was going through some challenges, but uh, what they revealed also in this book was that the challenges, as they were looking back, I mean, they're kind of trivial. You ever complain about all the things you're going through, and you look back and you go, that's embarrassing. Was that out loud? And she's going through this, and... Frequently mentioning the Lord, the Lord will be with me, the Lord will help me make... Alice noticed that a young woman at the next table had such a radiant, joyful face. Have you ever seen somebody so full of joy that you just kind of look and you're going, what's up with them? Are they on drugs? I mean, why are they so, she's just like, wow, this lady's so joyful. Well, the young woman smiled to them and said that she overheard their conversation. I mean, she's right at the next table. And she said, speaking softly, she encouraged Alice and Marlene uh, that God understood what they were going through and cared so much about their heartaches and their pain. He cares about every little thing. Nothing's too small. Give it to the Lord. Nothing can ever separate you from God's love and grace. Alice continued talking with Marlene but realized something was different. The young woman's words had refreshed them. They, their conversation changed. The young woman went back to her meal that she was eating and they were full of joy. It, it caught on. It's catchy. When the smiling woman got up to leave, Alice saw that she wore bulky shoes. One was higher than the other. She carried a walking stick. She's a young woman, remember this. And moved with a severe limp. The waitress told Alice this woman had been in a near-fatal automobile accident one year before that. She'd been in and out of the hospital and in rehabilitation. Her husband divorced her because of it. She lost her home. And she had just moved into a tiny one-bedroom studio apartment. She now used public transportation because she couldn't drive, lost the car anyway. And she was unable to find a job. Alice sat stunned. 
just stunned. She said, this young woman's conversation had been filled with the lights of the Lord, but there had been no weariness at all about her. Nothing to indicate any of that. She encouraged us with words of praise and promise. Meeting her that day, we would have never suspected that storms were raging all through her life. I would have never thought that, she said. And even as she stepped outside into the cold winter wind, she seemed to carry God's warm shelter of hope with her. You ever met anyone like that? Listen, being oblivious to eternity, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, being oblivious to eternity leaves us instead experts in the trivial things and novices in the significant. And I won't say that again since I butchered it the first time, but thinking not about eternity, thinking not about the value of building God's kingdom and that our stuff is really his stuff, just being oblivious to that stuff, here's what it'll do for you. Here's the advantage. It'll leave you an absolute expert in trivia and novices in the significant. Please don't blow by that. Things that really matter, you'll be like a kindergartner. You won't get them at all, but you'll be experts at a bunch of stuff that you read in gossip magazines or trivia or the latest TV show that actually matters nothing. Is that what you want? There's two CEOs out there, gang. In the movie Trading Places, remember that, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd? The formerly rich guy, character played by Aykroyd, is, is forced to live the life of a pauper while the formerly homeless dude, played by Eddie Murphy, is thrust in the limelight as an obscenely wealthy aristocratic type guy. It all happens because these two blue blood, these old cantankers billionaires have a bet for one dollar that actually anybody on the street could probably run this corporation just like that. Let's have them trade places and see what happens. And whole ridiculous, see how this whole ridiculous thing turns out. It's a hilarious movie mainly because of how out of their element both men seem the entire movie. I think most of us are living that movie in a way, in American evangelicalism. I really do. I think we're, we're living that movie. We strut through life believing that everything good we have is a result of our smarts or our looks or, or our athletic ability or our cunning or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. And the truth is God is running an experiment up there. How do I know that? Because Malachi 3.10 says, test me. It sounds like there's an experiment going on. And he knows that we don't own any of it. He does. And he's running an experiment. And he's saying, what will they do with my stuff? It's on loan to them. What will they do? How do we as stewards here determine what kind of CEO will be up there forever and ever? Or even what will be in charge of up there because of how we live down here? Two CEOs, gang, but there's really only one choice for the believer. Live like it's ours or live like it's God's. That's it. In a couple seconds here, I'm going to wrap up this little mini-series. That's pretty much it for the believer. You live like it's God's or you live like it's yours. Only one of them's true, but go ahead and live in a fantasy if you want. It seems like we have two choices, but for the believer, again, we only really have one. So friends, here's what I want us to do. I've never been able to do this as a pastor, but I've always wanted to. Let's, as a church, just starting off here, we're in our sixth month here from our grand opening. Let's determine as a church to settle this once and for all and say, God's the owner. Some of you are going, I don't know if he is, Pastor. I, don't, I still don't buy it. My question, is God really the owner? Maybe some of it, but not all of it. Yes, from Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures emphasize God's ownership of everything. 
So get ready for a real swift turbocharged beating. Here it comes. Consider the cumulative weight of Scripture. Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. <clears throat> what do you suppose that includes? Everything. Deuteronomy 10.14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, everything in it. Hmm, that's two verses from two different places. You don't have any more, do you? Yeah, lots. Here we go. Leviticus 25, 23. The land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Gulp. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. Who has a claim against me, God says, that I must actually pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. That's Job 14, 11. <clears throat> Psalm 50, 10 through 12, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle of a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field, they're mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. God can get sarcastic sometimes, isn't this funny? If I were hungry, which I never am, but if I was, I wouldn't even tell you. Why would I tell you? For the world is mine, and all that is in it. Haggai 2, 8, was the last time you read that book. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. It's pretty difficult is what I'm trying to say. And I can go on and on and on. But it's pretty difficult to imagine a more airtight case for absolute, outright, divine ownership of everything. I don't know where we get the idea that we own it. Because it's not from here that we get that idea. Some of you are like, wow, this is tough. At least I own myself. About that. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What am I worth? Let me ask you. I've been preaching for a long time to some of you. You were bought with a price. What was the price? What was it? God. He gave his son. His son Jesus gave his own life. You were bought with a price worth a million, billion, trillion, infinitely more than you're worth, than I'm worth. <clears throat> Case closed. Case closed. Verdict? God wants all of us to live like we actually trust him, like we believe this. Now, without application, this series is dead in the water, and we will have accomplished nothing. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm not going to have you put a rock up here or sign your name on the wall because this is a school that we don't know and that would be bad. Uh, I'm going to have you make a promise to the one who's been saying all this. These are God's words, not mine. And I'm going to, we're going to take the test as a church. We're just going to take the test as a church once and for all. And some people are like, I've done this before, Pastor Rob. I gave one week super high, way above 10%. And that Monday morning, he didn't answer my prayers. Well, good for you. I mean, that's about as quick as a Coke comes out with a, when you put it in a vending machine. So you're, you're saying he's a genie. This test that he offers is not so that you can figure out how to manipulate him or the secret formula for getting stuff. This test is to refine you, to make you more like Jesus. And as an added fringe benefit, he will take care of all your needs. You know, the stuff you and I worry about all the time. That's just done. So here it is. 90-day challenge starts today in a few minutes when we give back to God. 90-day challenge. 
the tithing of your first fruits to God. Not what's left over at the end of the month, your first fruits. Every week, each Lord's Day, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians. And by my math, on June 14th, Saturday, it will be over. The 90 days will be up. And if you can honestly say that the Lord has not taken care of your needs and your fears and so forth far better than you ever could yourself, the next day, the 15th, is a Sunday. Don't give at all. Stop giving. Pastor Rob, that could really ruin the church. <laughs> Are you kidding? I've got God backing me up. It's not going to ruin the church. God says he's faithful. So if you say it could ruin the church, you're calling God a liar. Careful. No, it's not. I, I've offered this test over the years. My, my wife offered it to me on our honeymoon. Little bait and switch, I get it, but she did. Check this out, we're married. Can't get out of it. We're down there on a beautiful honeymoon in St. Lucia. We're walking on the beach. She's got the spiritual gift of giving. Didn't tell me that either. Touch we're married and she goes, I dreamed, some of you have heard this before, I dreamed of marrying a man, a godly man who would be in ministry and ministry together. We would start from the the first day that we're married, and every year that we're married, we'll start at 10%. That's nothing. And I'm hearing this. I'm holding her hand, and she's going, that's nothing. I'm going, that's something. 10%. She goes, every year, we'll add a percent. 11%, and then 12, and then 13. And let's watch how God takes care of us, even so we can't outgive God. Let's do that. And I, I promise you, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I said, let's not. Let's not do that. Because, I mean, it scared me to death. But for the next, over the next years, we did. We did. And there were times when it got up to 30 or 40%. You guys have been married 40 years? No. No, it's just sometimes it just would, it would go way up, and so, but it never returned to any less than about 15 or 20. And, we just averaged, and guess what? God blessed our socks off. I mean, we, we literally got in competition with God. We're like, you can't, can't outgive God? Let's try harder. Can't outgive God? And some of you have heard your whole life, you can't outgive God, but you're not even trying. You're not even trying. Well, I can't outgive God, so why even try? I lose. Well, that doesn't mean you're not supposed to try. You're missing the point entirely. Take the 90-day challenge. Sunday, June 15th. If God has failed you, end it. Just learn more facts about God, but end it. Stop tithing. Now, let's remember something. We're going to hold off a little bit. Sermon's over, series is over. But we're going to hold off a little bit on giving back to God because I want you to think about it through this time too the Lord's Supper. Think about it in a little bit different way. Let's prepare to gather around his table. Take time as always to pray and ask God to reveal anything that you have against another brother or sister. Get that right. Confess your sins. Cleanse that out. But remember, mostly remember. And today I want you to remember the things he's given you. Remember the privileges of what he's let you steward. And ask yourself, am I stewarding this well? I, mean, I always have things that I remember. I remember going to camps and things when I was young. Word of life, forest home. And you know how certain smells or, or tastes or whatever can bring back things? For me, it's pine. If I, I'm not kidding. It's so powerful. I remember the presence of the Lord at some of these camps. If somebody even sprays an air freshener with pine in it, I mean, I'd literally just stop. And the memories come flooding in. And that's what... God's asking you to do. What does it take to let the memories come flooding in about Jesus? You know, the disciples on that night before, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed and before he was crucified, they had warm, flat, unleavened bread and they broke it and they took it and they had wine. And they'd had that before. 
But can you imagine after Jesus gives his life and they realize what it's for, he raises again and they're thrust into ministry. Can you imagine what every other time tearing that bread and tasting that wine brought back to them? Can you imagine? Now, every time they taste it, every time they drink it, a flood of memories comes back like it's real. That's what communion is about. Let's not trivialize this. Time for the bread, time for the little cup, done. No, this is a precious moment in which Scripture says the presence of the Lord invades this moment. Today, I just want you to remember it specifically as the gift. He didn't just give himself and come and sign a contract and leave. By giving himself, this world attacked him and brutalized him and bled him out and ripped his flesh and killed him. That's what he came to do, but it, why did it have to be so bad? Because I guess the sacrifice had to equal the love, gang. He loves you that much. And if we as a church and we as individuals are going to be anything like Jesus, it's got to start with being a generous church. It just does. It just does. A generous church can change this world. They look at us and it doesn't make sense. Pray about that. And when you're ready, come and take the bread and the cup. Find a place in here alone for a few minutes. Pray. Thank him for what he's given you and promise him that you are going to be a good steward so that you'll be able to say to him, well done. Or you'll be able to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. When we're done with communion, I'll come up and close us with giving back to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege and the flat out honor it is, Lord, to partner up with you and be money managers. Lord, you, I can't believe that. You say, I will give you a lot of stuff to work with while you're alive. Use it for my kingdom. Use it for your needs. Use it to eat. Use it to have the things you need. But use it for my kingdom most of all. Leverage this. Be like the, the parable of the talents, those people. The more I give you, the more I want you to use it. And the more you use it, the more I'll give you to use it. God, that's simple but so hard to get. Help us to get it as a church because, Father, we're going we're gonna to absolutely impact this world if we just get this simple lesson. Love you, Father change us from the inside out in the area of generosity. Let us all board, get on the giving bridge and walk it and live on it from this day forward the rest of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.